Hello, everybody, and before we get to this week's special episode with Sebastian Lethbridge, we have a special announcement from somebody who's worked with Seb in the Trenches. So joining us once again, all the way from episode 36, is Jeff Miller. And Jeff is kind of doing double duty for us right now because he's also the co-creator of one of our favorite partners of the show, Club Jason. So welcome back, Jeff. Thanks for doing this, man. Hey, thanks, Josh. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, I I knew you were the guy to get for this because... uh, I've picked on Seb a little bit over the the years of the show, and I and I, I set the record straight when we finally get him on air. But uh, I think you deserve some credit from a guy who's worked with them not only at Fanshawe but at Camp Madawaska. Like you've had a lot of interactions with this kid, and I think you can kind of just give us a, a quick story to kind of speak to his character because he, he comes across great in the episode. But I think uh, like most people, he doesn't sell himself as well as maybe other people can. So I was hoping you could give us a quick story to make this episode a little bit more special. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh... You know, I, I've been uh, I've been very fortunate to to be his coach, um, and you know, after the the realm of coaching kind of ended, uh, I've been really fortunate to be his friend as well. And um, you know, it, it's it, it's not by accident that uh, you know everybody gravitates towards him, and um, and that people really enjoy being around him because um, you know, as great of a captain and as a volleyball player he's been, uh, you know, over the last decade or so. Um, he's also such a great friend and a great person to everyone around him. So, um, you know, everything from, you know, going from, uh, from hotel rooms to, to competition floors and red deer with, you know, driving with the windows down and, um, you know, from hanging out and creating the mint chips at, at Matawaska and, you know, I, as, you know, kind of everything in between. He's just such a great person. And, um, you know, the volleyball community um, is so fortunate to have a guy like that or not. Yeah, he's just such a great, genuine dude that he's just always so high energy. He's so inclusive of everybody around him. Like, I understand he's pretty big in, like, the youth community too, right? Like, PJ gets him involved with as much of the London Fire stuff or London volleyball camps as they can because he's just such a great guy to be around young athletes because his passion and just comes through for the sport so clearly, right? You know, it, it's funny. There's uh, uh, a lot of people are going to look at uh, you know Wayne Gretzky, and and uh, not that I'm comparing. <laughs> whoa, Wayne. whoa, hey, uh, whoa! <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but seeing him as a hockey player, and then you know he translates into coaching, and it doesn't always translate so well. Um, it, I can I can say with you know with everything that I have that he is not only a very, very good coach right now, um, he's going to, to make a great coach, um, you know, no matter which path he decides to follow, whether it's, you know, youth coaching or if he decides to, uh, you know, follow more in PJ's footsteps and go high performance. And, um, you know, I know he's going to be successful either way because, um, you know, even around London here, there's, you know, PJ does such a great job at the camps to, to bring in, you know, Melissa Bartlett and Shane White and, the huge names in the coaching community, um, especially around London here. But uh, somehow, someway, every parent, every athlete always seem to gravitate to, um, and, and we always hear the quote of, you know, can I be on Sebastian's court? Or, you know, can, uh, can you make sure my son is playing uh, on Sebastian's court all week? And, and, you know, it always ceases to amaze both PJ and I that, uh, you know, no matter what world-class coaches you bring in, it's, uh, it's always about the, the relationships you build throughout your entire career from player to coach. And, uh, you know, he's done such an incredible job of that here in London that, um, you know, him and his entire family, 
um, as you know, Maddie as well, um, who have just been pillars in the, in the volleyball community here. So, um, yeah, it's been something special and, you know, I guess, uh, he's earned his name, the golden boy, um, here around the London part. Yeah, I think his episode's going to make February extra special for us because we got his episode, we got Valentine's Day, we got Family Day, but uh, I'm going to let you do the honors. Club Jason is going to announce a, a special Golden Boy promotion here for the kid. Uh, can you just tell the fans, uh, friends of the show, what they're in for with a, a new Club Jason promotion here? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, we're fortunate enough to be based out of uh, London and St. Thomas. So, um, you know, for all of the uh, volleyball and also golf fans, or, you know, if you're looking for just some additional apparel for, uh, you know, any coaches in the community or, or, you know, you just want to be, uh, be looking really sharp. We've got everything from polos to pullovers, um, you know, almost anything you can imagine there for, uh, for golfers. And, uh, and we're offering 25%, uh, with the use of the code, uh, golden boy, all one word, all lowercase. Um, they are at checkout. So again, the code golden boy for 25% off. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, you and I, I, I don't think we always make the best podcast guests because we don't like to talk about ourselves, but uh, anytime we can talk about Seb and really pump him up, I think it's worth it. And to, you know, use him to kind of bridge a promotion and a partnership for the friends of the show. I think it's just this perfect thing. So it's great to hear your voice and have you back on the show, but I feel like it's time to start bragging and let the, the listeners of the show become big Sabathian Lethbridge fans like you and I are. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, Josh. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. I'm just over the moon excited again for today's guest. We, we have so many stacked guests lately, and this one's extra special because he's been name dropped probably over a dozen times on the show, and finally he gets his say in some of these stories. So today's guest played for Team Canada at the youth level in 18U and at FISU Games. He's represented Team Ontario several times at the National Team Challenge Cup. He was awarded Mr. Volleyball in London. He's a three-time OCAA champion and a bronze medalist. He's a CCAA champion, silver medalist, and bronze medalist. He won the Ken Davies Award through the Ontario Volleyball Association. He's got a silver at Beach Nationals, a silver at OFSA. He's won provincial championships in the OVA and is a two-time club national champion. That's not even his full bio, but I got to start the interview eventually. Please welcome to the show, Sebastian Lethbridge. Seb, thanks for doing this, man. Thanks for having me, Josh. Man, long bio. I had to cut it short there just to get, you know, your side of the story here. <laughs> Sorry, dude. Sorry. <laughs> well, this is awesome. Hopefully some of our listeners recognize your name because Pat Johnson and Dre and just a bunch of people have brought you up in the past. But I do want to get your side. But before we get there, I want to know how you turned into a volleyball guy. Because I think growing up in that London area, you can play any sport you want at a, at a pretty good level. So what caught your attention with volleyball? What made that your passion that you wanted to pursue? Um, I, so I started off playing basketball, nothing, nothing, um, crazy, um, organized, just did some basketball camps. And then it was actually my cousin who lived in Aurora. He played, um, Josh Davis way back in the day. I think he played with Alex Lewicki. That's what he was, uh, he told me about, but anyways, he, um, he had a tournament at Fanshawe one, uh, one year. So I went and watched. Uh, me and my brother and my sister all got super into it. So we started playing and grade six, I started doing indoor beach stuff at Spikes ran by uh, Dave Cousins and Sean Fresnel. Another friend of the show. Shout out. Good. Yes. Yeah. So I did that for about two years. And then once I hit 14 U, my grade eight year, my um, public school coach was like, hey, Seb, just, just go for the tryout. Just go 
see what it's like. So I did, and yeah, the rest is kind of history. That's how I started out. Nice. And tell me about your first impression at that Forest City tryout, because when Forest City was was the club in London, I know there's been a split, and now they exist with London Fire. But uh, hearing from Eric Simon, those tryouts are pretty gnarly, because there's not only a ton of volleyball players in London, but just the catchment area of people driving as far as like Exeter or even Stratford sometimes to play. Like, How many kids were in the gym? What was your first impression of club volleyball? It was it was pretty intense. Well, the, the first person I saw as I walked into the gym was grade eight, six foot six, Matt Maudsley. And I'm like, <laughs> come on. I'm not like, what is going on here? So that was a little intimidating right off the bat. But there were so many kids. Like as the years went on, I realized that we'd maybe get 20 years to our tryouts or 20, 20 kids to our tryouts each year. And I'm like, wow, these really dwindled off because those first 14, 15, 16 new years, we had crazy numbers. I think like north of 50, closer to 60. And it was just intense. And like you said, you got kids from Woodstock, you got some from Stratford, even Chatham, sometimes making the drive in. There was kids from all over. It was pretty intimidating, but it was it was great volleyball then. Nice. And as soon as it got organized and you got put into positions, because I think at 14, you in I'm not sure. I don't think you played like the six six rotation. I think your coach could maybe no. set you up with a position, right? So were you in love with the setter? Ball. Oh, sorry, it was triple most, ball? Well, for most of the season. I think it was up until I want to say the last the last tournament before provincials. And then we did it. I'm not too sure. But yeah, I remember a lot of triple ball triple ball when I was in fourteen U. Oh, nice. Um, and with you being a beach guy, you probably wanted to play every position, but eventually when did yeah. you sink your teeth into setting? I loved being an outside man. So I was I was playing left side till 14U, 15U, and even the start of 16U. And then Dave Phoenix was my coach at the time. And he was like, hey, Seb, we're looking to try to find our like setter kind of thing. And, and Matt Maudsley really actually filled the spot right away because he has great hands. And I mean, you don't really complain when you have a six foot six setter at that age. <laughs> and, and it worked well for us. So he, he dished the ball well. Um, and then I think we just started just looking at different options and I took a couple practices, uh, setting, I started working with Mark Peckham a bunch, getting some extra reps there. And then I think by the middle of the year, my 16 year, Matt and I were running a six, two. Um, so we could both swing and set. And then, yeah, I just, I just committed to it. I kind of accepted the fact that I'm going to stay as a six, two, not jumpy <laughs> volleyball player. Um, <laughs> So I just kind of adapted to what I what I was given. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not complaining. I love setting. And I think it was the best decision I made. It is. But but looking back, I think that would have been one of the coolest systems I would have seen in OVA. It would have been you and Dre on the left side, two dynamic lefties, and then this just ginormous setter. I think that would have been one of the most unique club teams coming through. But it, it worked out for everybody involved, I think. Yeah, yeah. I can't really complain with how things went. It was it was so fun, man. Like in hindsight, having Maudsley as a setter, it was so fun. The guy would dump from the back row without even jumping and get away <laughs> with it half the time. Like he was just yeah, next level. Nice. So I, I won't share an allegiance because I honestly have friends at at Forest City and Lennon Fire, and I'm just gonna stay mm-hmm. neutral right down the middle. But I am curious when you got a little bit older and that fire team got together and you were doing center of excellence, like even in your Ken Davies article, you were quoted as saying like, when can I get more reps? It sounded like you were super obsessed and you were going to go to VCC sessions. You were going to go to club practice, which I'm sure was two or three times a week. You were at Oak Ridge, which is a heck of a school program. Like how often were you? 
Oh, Saunders. You're a Saunders guy. Oh, sorry. Eric Simon, I think, was an Oak Ridge guy. Okay. Oh, yeah. No, that's all good. But anyways, uh, when did you really start dishing and loving, like, the tactical side of volleyball? Because you really developed, like, a pretty unique style during this, this phase, I feel. Yeah. yeah so, I'd, I'd say it's – once I hit 17U, once we made the switch to fire – I think it was just natural. Like the 17 new year, the balls start going a little faster. People start jumping higher. Um, just physical talent isn't enough to win games anymore. It's it's more tactics and strategy that have to come in there. And that's where I think moving over and, and getting coached by Pat was such a good decision. He's, as everyone knows, one of the most tactical, brilliant coaches in the country. And um, that helped a lot. So I started off um, getting a lot of reps with Shane White. and. Obviously, they, it didn't really work in the end because he's the most technical <laughs> setting coach and his his school of teaching is is just straight technicality and and I am not that. I tried really hard for two years. He drilled it into my head. I had the footwork down, the hand placement. But in practices and, and isolated reps, that went great. But as soon as I got into a game, it was just like, yeah, just go revert to your old ways. Just go be undisciplined and, and fling the ball but um yeah once we got into the technical stuff it was super cool and um it was just like my eyes had been opened to how deep volleyball goes when it comes to strategy you start learning about all your gaps your different tempos your different types of sets your options if you want to leave a ball inside for a certain attacker you need to push it out just all the things that come around with with tactical thinking, it was just so satisfying to see it all come to fruition um, with, with with Pat and, the, and the, the players we had on our team. Yeah, I'm curious to get your side of this because like you said, working with Shane and PJ and some other coaches, I, I made the joke on PJ episode that I think David Doty, if, you, if Shane could design a setter in a lab, that's it. Like the way he uses his yeah. footwork, the hand placement. Uh, and then there's you kind of a different end of the spectrum. And then there's one other kid in London. I forget his name. He went on to play at Guelph for a little bit. He's maybe the age group above. Him? Yeah. Like, so there were so many good setters in London yeah. during that era, right? So how did you find your own style and not have like Shane just lose his mind when you didn't do the step close that he wanted you to do? Like, was it honestly because you were setting hittable balls and getting one-on-ones or how did you feel about this technical tactical side with all the different coaches you were getting? It it was tough to find the right balance between um, taking all their feedback and their, their style and trying to implement it, but also doing what I know would work for me. So, so obviously it would start with me being super technical and as, as a match would go on and I'd start to feel the game out more, I would get a little, little more gutty with my, my jumps. That's, that was the one thing I think was really different for me than everyone else was my jumping. I would jump a lot early when I was about to set to try to just get middles to bite middles outsides on the, on the overloads and the separation sets. It's, I thought it was super helpful to just mess around with my jump just to get them to bite on me they might think i'm i'm dumping they might think always oh, jumping early gotta go middle stuff like that so uh it, it was tough because i know shane and peach were not too impressed when it started all i needed was uh kind of like a couple matches or a couple practices or, or reps for them to see that it's just kind of my, my way of of doing things yeah and <laughs> i'm not that kind of sounds kind of selfish but uh I was just I was just trying to make the best of everything I had and yeah 
Well, you definitely won some people over because PJ again mentioned on his episode at Team Ontario, those coaches are again trying to mold you and make you like look like Mm -hmm. this high performance setter. And finally, PJ said he spoke up in a meeting and said, honestly, it's your team and you can do what you want. But Seb's a feel setter and he needs to feel it and he needs to be in the game. And if he wants to jump early and set on the way down or set off one foot, like I think that's when he's at his best. But it's your team. And I thought that was an interesting not an argument, but just an insight to give on you that like you really do need to feel it out and it might not look like this cookie cutter setter that I think people want, but it, it performs, right? Yeah, and that was that was the thing. My first year I made Timo, um, I was 16 um, and we were at the NTC Cup, NTCC Cup in, um, in Gatineau and I had, who did I have? I had James Jackson, Josh Henderson, Jeremy Williams, A. Rich, Dre, I think Maudsley, we had, we had a crazy good team for being young guns, that is. And so I got the start our first game. I think we played Alberta and it, I was so fired up. Ian gives us our, our scouting sheets, all our game reports. And I studied these so hard and I had all the analytics and stats in my head. So I tried to go out and set it and I just got abused. It was embarrassing. I had, I had a terrible game and it was, I honestly think it's because I got way too into my head and I just started thinking about yeah like the numbers and I didn't feel the game and so I had a rough tournament I didn't I didn't really get to play much after that but understandably um and then the next year once I was actually this is my 18 new year Ian pulled me aside right before we were about to leave for the national team challenge cup and he goes Seb remember this couple of years ago eh and I was like yeah yeah, how can I forget? And he's like, well, just want you to know you got the start first game. Just go feel it out. No numbers. And Peach just kind of like looked over at me and just gave me like the nod. And I was like, yes, thank you, please. So that that took a big weight off my shoulders, just knowing that they were on board with with how I rolled. And they're just going to give me a chance to prove myself and let me see if my game worked. Now, anyone who's ever seen you play, they're going to say you are extremely tactical just from watching you. So it is interesting to hear you say that you don't want to know we're in rotation four, they're in rotation, I don't know, two, like yeah. what's the matchup? Like you, you don't care. I think, yeah, <laughs> sorry to cut you off there. It was, it was, I, I did once I was able, I think it's because I was, I was so young and new to the whole tactical side of it that I was unable to process both at the same time, where it was either like, hey, you're going to have the, the setters in four. We're going to bite over, go three on this outside if there's any pass lower than a, than a three. So like that kind of stuff, when it was in my head at 17, 18, I was like, okay, that's all I got to think about right now. And then I would just totally lose focus on like a free ball coming over, Biff, Biff and outside set into the antenna. And it was, yeah, it, it just tore at me. And then I think throughout the years, I was able to retain some of the, the information and uh, yeah, just kind of execute it my own way. So one thing that really changed the way I think about it, because I got to go learn data volley from Lionel, the Canadian scout, and Nate Go was there, the U.S. guy. And Nate mentioned the U.S. has totally shifted the way they do their plan right now, where in that era, if they were playing Canada, they would be like, okay, Gavin's in the front row. This is our blocking plan. They wouldn't care about what rotation they are and what rotation are you. And it's like, Gavin's the guy. We're going to do this. If Gord's here, we're going to do this. Like It was just kind of identifying what they wanted to do each player versus percentages and stuff. So I'm curious when you really got tactical – 
and, and people claim that you like you're a feel setter. What were you feeling out? Like who's the hot hand on your side or who's the blocker we're trying to avoid or isolate? Like what are some little things that just coaches listening and go like, oh, I just don't want my setter to go out there and sling it like Seb did. But just show us what your mindset was when you say like you're a feel guy. What were some things that you would pick up on to help your decision making? So first thing we we always had we called it the guy on our team and the other team. So who is hot basically on our team, it would be whoever your, your Zach, your James or your Cole Jordan. Um, and, but on the other team, we did a really good job of just isolating the guy. So what I would try to do is I would wait for the first couple. Yeah. First couple points of the game, we got to get a free ball over and I would either try to run some inside ball or some crazy, secondary tempo set at this guy just to get him on his heels get him thinking a bit more um expose him a bit so the first part of my game would just would basically be to try to make this guy to think as much as he can so he can't do and yeah just get my attackers in the best spot for them to terminate the point but for the most part, it was it was my eyes were always on middles. I, I had a lot of trust in our attackers, or at least our pin attackers, that they could score one on one. So I watched a lot of film on middles. I tried messing around with my jumps and warm up and in early in the game to see if they would bite, kind of pick up on their cues, and yeah, go from there and, and try to abuse them. Now, were you a guy who would use your peripheral or sneak over, or were there yeah. any cues you'd want to see from the actual middle? I would. I really enjoyed tight passes. Um, it, it made it a lot easier to keep my eyes on on the middle peripherally. And even sometimes if there was a tight ball and I had to face the net, that made it a lot easier. Yeah, I don't – it's 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 tough because it could be the littlest thing and every single time could be a little different. But, yeah, our middles were well-respected. And it showed because we were not often left in the middle. And if we were, we ran them the first 10 points in the game and then they started respecting our middle and that just freed up everyone else. I, I don't want to take all the credit because we had some amazing attackers that made all the blockers and defenders lives very hard. <laughs> Definitely a, a good point <laughs> for sure. My job easy. So just kind of moving forward in your career, I've always thought you were an easy guy to root for because you're always like, chatty super nice like even at team ontario i was on the women's side and we would chat just because like you'd be in the hallway i'd be in the hallway like you're just a super approachable guy but one moment that stands out to me about how skilled you were was pj's doing a presentation at morning session at madawaska and just randomly pulls you out you're cold and you're all of a sudden you had to do a standing serve a jump float serve a spin serve and then he's like do your jump float where you land further in the court so you can go play defense and you're just ripping off these reps like it was nothing And i'm like isn't he cold or wasn't he just standing around like the rest of us so that really showed me how skilled you were because i knew how unreal you were as a setter but to see your your serving game and then digging some balls just with pj random being like oh i need a visual demo seb get out here so what what were practices like for you like did you just feel like skills were always going to be the fun thing like did you go to practice always in a good mood ready to learn because like i said for you to rip off these three serves and dig a couple balls i was like this guy's good at everything it it was fun i always i always liked I was I had big guy big guys on my team I was going up against. So when the the setter gets to rip a, a spin serve, it's like always fun. So yeah, I really enjoyed that. I, the defensive practices were Pat with Pat were always the best, always the most fun. Just getting balls ripped at you down the line or cross court and just hoping 
you get hit by it. Like it, it's just a mindset that he he gave all of us. <laughs> yeah. So the skills practices were weren't always fun. Let's say that the first ten minutes are always kind of grueling, but then once all the boys get fired up and, and everyone's just trying to get hit with the ball and see so you can get the biggest scoop and it becomes an ego challenge. It was, it, it became crazy fun. I, I did like, I like defense, didn't really like blocking too much. And yeah, I like serving. We did a lot of time on serving. Nice. And I'm curious when your skills are growing and your confidence is growing, like what did you think mm-hmm. when you got this Mr. Volleyball award or you got the Ken Davies award? Because those are two per, like, prestigious awards to be getting in the Ontario community. So were those just like confirming what you knew or did those moments where you're like, man, like I've arrived, I'm definitely climbing the ladder that I've set out for myself. Uh, It was, it did not feel real. Ken Davies did not feel real. That was the first time I think by I'd made team Ontario before then. And that was a great sense of accomplishment, but I was, I was not ready slash expecting Ken Davies. We had a pretty talented cohort. Yeah, but when I once I got the email, I was like, no, please no. Like this is, yeah, it was it was nuts, um, and it, it did feel good. It it was a little easier to go into practices and, and do those early Sunday mornings or late night reps and just the, the grindy stuff made it, it made it a little easier. Yeah, it was it was actually it was such a good time, man. I miss I miss that eighteen years so much, and uh, yeah, Mister Volleyball was sweet. That was cool. They announced it at the All Star Game. So there was, and it, it was cool. So my club team was spread out all over the city. So there wasn't more than two guys from my team that went to the same high school. So everyone had their own high school. And then we all ripped together at the, at the all-star game. And that was just a hoot, some good ball. We had, was it Steve Brinkman, Paul Durden coaching? And it was just a show. It was a lot of fun. And then at the end of the night, yeah, they announced Mr. Volleyball. And that, that was, that was pretty cool to just be among my teammates and uh, like the whole London volleyball com- uh, community. Nice. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious, just while we're on this London subject, you mentioned yeah. your, your club team. So with you being a Saunders guy, was Oak Ridge the big crosstown rival or who did you kind of fire up for in your high school league? Oak Ridge has always been, it's always been the Saunders Oak Ridge rivalry, but I had, I had something against Clark road, Dre's school. I, I just personally, it was Clark road Saunders would be against Lucas and Oak Ridge. Clark Road snuffed us from our city finals when I was in grade 10. They had Dre. They had Dre. Like, <laughs> and Dre <laughs> clapped us. Dre is just, I hate playing against him. Like, I'm so glad I've had to do it maybe five times and it was only in high school ball because that guy is just, he's so smart and he can tailor his game to play any type of skill level and just put them in a blender. <laughs> So that sucked. I hated playing Dre because it was a coin toss. I'd say we had the better team almost every year, but yeah, he uh, he did some magic. And then Lucas, Lucas didn't have too many club players, but they were just trash talkers. I did not like them. <laughs> yeah, and and Oak Ridge just Oak Ridge. But they were they were really good. They they beat us most of my high school career because they had a, they had a super strong. When I was in grade twelve, their their grade eleven class was just crazy. They had. David Doty, Dakin Edwards, Taylor Jordan, all all those boys, and they were they were really good. They were up there with with my club team. So yeah, London volleyball was definitely not not poor quality. Let's say that. And I'm wondering. Uh, yeah, it made it super fun. 
Passing Dimes is proud to welcome a new partner to the show, Momentum Pro Camps. Momentum Pro Camps runs volleyball camps across Ontario, bringing professional athletes, coaches, and resources to communities, clubs, and partners. Momentum's mission is to inspire and develop high performers for life, and they're doing just that. Unfortunately, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, Momentum has suspended all programming until permitted by local public health recommendations. However, they have developed incredible future programming for athletes to benefit from and are excited to share it with all of you when we can play again. Follow us on social media at Momentum Pro Camps for updates and details on future programs or email us at contact at MomentumProCamps.com. Stay excellent, friends. Did Dre ever talk to you through the net? Because he let one slip where I've always thought he's a super skilled player and he can definitely take over a game like he said. But I thought his chirps were hilarious where he said he would walk up to the other team setter and be like, yeah, you're not going to set middle on this next play. And he's like, yes. even if he did or he didn't, he would just like poke you in the brain and be like, now, did you do that because I said you wouldn't? Or did you do that because you're stubborn? Like, what's going on? <laughs> he And it was weird. I think he never really did that to me. Actually, that's a lie. He would walk up to the net and then like turn his back to me and be like, Free ball, Seb's dumping right to the pot. Lib, just get in there. It's going to be cake. And I'm like, <laughs> come on, bro. Like, don't do that to me because I'm going to dump it now. <laughs> so every time, yeah, he would do a lot of that and a lot of, hey, I'm going to say this to my team knowing you're listening. And I hope it rattles your brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, what works. a guy. <laughs> Great when he's on your side, but I, I think it would be really tough to match up against him. Yeah, he is that guy for sure. So how did the, the Fanshawe thing come together? Because obviously the, the relationship with PJ's there and you're a London guy, but it just seemed like mm-hmm. London Fire just transferred into Fanshawe all of a sudden. You guys continued this winning way. So what went into your studies and that decision? And did you guys talk amongst yourselves about like, hey, like I'm, I'm college bound, you're college bound. Let's choose the same school so we can stack this thing. Um, Not even, to be honest. It was... It was... Yeah, I think we only had two people signed to Fanshawe, and there was it was Brock Rigby and I think JJ James Jackson there, and they were um, both a year above Dre and I and that whole crew. And I was I was originally going to Mac, and then when that stuff changed, I was like I chatted with Peach, and I was like, "Hey man, like I think I'm gonna come," and he's like, "All right, bro." So we got that going, and then I think it was like right after that. Or before that, there was like four or five other guys and it ended up being like 80% of my club team <laughs> was now at Fanshawe. And I, we were all fired up because we, we had done pretty well the years before and we're like, okay, if we can do this at the college level, same coach, but we're all getting older, stronger, bigger, faster. This could be pretty exciting. And we all, yeah, we were all super fired up because our first year was was pretty eye-opening. We had, a, I think, four, three or four rookies starting. And it was it was just so cool to see the next level of volleyball and, and what we had to compete against and what we had to be if we wanted to be that next level team. And, and that's when the work started. And it was, yeah, it was a really fun process to get that program up on the map. 
Now, one cool thing that we got from PJ's episode is just a lot of people commented that they really liked his style of like multi-ball and the way he keeps practices mm-hmm. fast. So from a player's uh, standpoint, can you just give us an example of like what you would enjoy those practices? Even if you just give us an example of a drill, but what what was the pace of practice? How many reps are you getting? How many situations are you in? Like, just give us an example, like when you're really buzzing at practice and enjoying it, like what's what's the setup there? Cool. Yeah. So it usually started the same way. We do about five to 10 minutes of three person pepper, just kind of like a weave um, till we get warm. We would, depending on if it was the night before game day, we'd play round of volus to see who had to carry all the jerseys and the, and the team food. And then once that was finished, we usually ripped into, I want to say butterfly. Yeah. Butterfly or some type of variation of serve and pass. And it was, it was right there. Peach was really good at letting us know what the, the focus of the night was. So if it was a serving night, he would tell our service to take a little bit more risk from the line when the passers just have to be patient and and do whatever they could with the balls that they get. But it was it was super nice. Once we started getting into compete mode, we would start doing our hitting lines. The guys would start getting fired up. We would start playing these mini wash drills, guys getting super into it talking a lot of trash through the net health in a healthy way. Like we were, we, I think we were, that was one of the things we were really good at is creating a super competitive environment without guys taking things personal and, and creating a, a toxic issue. But yeah, once we started getting into gameplay, a lot of the time we did mini matches. So it'd be play 10 balls, um, receiving side has to win more than seven to rotate. And so you would get, in a rut and stay in the same formation for maybe, I don't know, two or three rounds and the guys in the other team, which was usually the, the box side. So our, our, our bench players would always, always kill us in practice. It just, it was super cool. They, they did not give a damn about what they said, what they did. They were going out there to, to claim a starting spot and they had nothing to lose. So that, that really pushed us and, and having, it's kind of like that deep down feeling like it's brutal to say, but no one wants to lose to their bench. It's just kind of like that, that unwritten rule. And so if we had a super competitive, competitive environment where our, our bench is almost spanking us every night, like we can't really, we can't complain about the volleyball that we're getting at practice. It's yeah, it, it was a super fun competitive atmosphere that made it, that made it. Yeah. I don't know. Fun. and. And, and yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Amazing. No, no. Cause I think when you list the names and you talk about how competitive it is and, and the guys there and rookies stepping in and challenging for starting spots, I think it's a really cool culture there. And I'm just yeah. curious to add on to one more thing. Like PJ is really good about building the focus of the drill. So say I'm a middle and I'm working on digging down the line that I would have to serve before I can step in and dig. And then yeah. I would get like a live round. So I'm curious when someone else is the focus of the drill, what would you do as a setter? Like, are you just so dialed in that you're like, I'm going to give the most hittable ball. So this guy can watch one down the line or how did the support players work in those style of drills where maybe the star of the drill is that that line dig but how would you still dialed in if that wasn't like going to be your rep you know what i mean right yeah so it was it was always tough um not being the folks of the drill in the sense that you cannot screw up your job like if like like you said if you're if your job if we want the middles to work on digging down the line um if someone's entering a free ball to the other side and you can't pass a free ball like it's, it's the pressure's on. 
And we did have a pretty short leash for that kind of stuff. Like you could get switched out pretty quick if you weren't delivering what the focus was. Because Peach would do a really good job of, of, of isolating and bunching when it when he needed to. But uh, yeah, all, all I tried to do was just make it hittable. I didn't have to force my tempo and make it completely game-like if we were just working on 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 attacking or on defending. Sorry, I, all I had to do was make it hittable down the line. Doesn't need to be game speed. Doesn't need to be fifth set national finals tempo that we're feeling out throughout the game. It's just got to be hittable. Do my job, and, and then so yeah, so the defenders can do theirs and get way better. I'm curious what you thought of the OCAA and the CCAA in terms of matchups. Like as a first year, did you really start to absorb that, that Mohawk and Humber rivalry, or did you just really start to hate Red Deer after being to nationals? Like how did, how did it progress just the level there? Cause I think it's fair to say that college, I think sometimes is a lower level than university on the whole, but I think yeah. there's a lot of college programs that are really darn good and you were definitely yeah. in one of them. So I'm curious when you play those, those top dogs, because this, to me, the OCAA isn't even, and I felt this with George Brown that sometimes we are high and sometimes we are low, but definitely yeah. the top teams are the top teams and they're real good. So with you being in one of those positions, how how did you feel about the league and then getting to nationals league play was it, it was it was good for the most part as as i got older and into my third and fourth year i, I found the league kind of balanced out a little bit more whereas my first year there was two or three teams that, that would give us a good fight and the rest would be kind of easy-ish three setters kind of 25 15 sprinkling all the guys so they could get some good reps but then once we made it to made it out of Ontario and got to the national level, my first year that that was really eye opening because I was so unaware of of the college talent. Like I, I went into college knowing or thinking at least that I was like, wow, this is way lower volleyball than I expected. Um, and then as soon as we hit the national stage, we got our eyes opened. It was it was really cool and exciting to see that. We, why are we thinking we're the big fish in the pond? Like there's so many other sharks out there that are just ready to gobble us up. So I think my first year that that was really eye opening. When we got bronze, I don't think we actually I do. I think we deserved bronze. That was fair, but um, I do not think we were ready for that talent of volleyball. Um, so then once once that happened, I think our, after our first trip to nationals, we knew what we had done and done for the program and what that meant and and how we can just keep pushing and all we had to do was win one more game that was our kind of our mottos win one more game every year after the next just win one, one more game and it ended up being being pretty cool yeah so as soon as we got back to Ontario after after my first year um Humber was always Humber um big loud love to talk um scrappy they, they're 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 talented but yeah, it was, it was just a uh, rivalry. <laughs> um, and Mohawk was cool. Mohawk had all the older dudes. That was that was pretty fun. My first and second year, they were wild. They were they were cavemen who just had raw energy, and they were just men. But <laughs> yeah, you got your Eric Gerard, your Trevor, yeah, Spack. Now, how would? you and Dre and some of the other leaders on the team and PJ like to think about that, that end goal. Like, would you guys talk about we're going to win provincials and we're going to win nationals or was it more like process driven? Like when did these talks start happening? Because uh, for you to go to nationals every year of your, your OCAA career is very impressive, but to see how you went from like bronze fourth 
silver winning, I think is the order it went in, right? So yeah. obviously you guys were climbing to something. So I'm wondering, were those talks happening or how are you guys doing on like the goal setting side of this about like win that one more game that you guys had talked about? Yeah. So, so first year we were kind of, um, kind of in the dark of what we were, our goals were and, and what we thought, cause we had no, no like knowledge of what the nationals tournament was going to look like, what the talent was, what the other teams looked like. So I think once we got there, it was okay, let's assess what we've got here. Let's make some reasonable and attainable goals that we can be happy with and some to work towards. And I think bronze was good. And then second year when we, we hosted nationals, that was the worst thing that could have happened to us. It was just that, that subconscious knowing that you've already made it to nationals, I think was what made us a little bit lenient and complacent. And it wasn't the best finish to our year. Yeah, we got we got demoed in the provincial semi by Durham. Not even going to go into that. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so we got demoed there. And then it was, okay, we have to put on a good show now. We're playing in front of our, our home crowd. Like This is nationals Saturday night. This is a big game. We cannot screw this up. And I think that started weighing pretty heavily on us. And yeah, we, um, I think we got the, the, that, that bronze medal game was pretty epic. Um, but yeah, we just couldn't pull it through fifth set. I think it was 21, 19 in front of home crowd. That was a heartbreaker. But, uh, I, I think that's when we knew that we had to make some, some decisions. Um, if we wanted to be a medal contending team, and not just a medal contending team, a gold medal contending team, um, the next year. And then I think with the additions, uh, that's when we picked up Will Otten, Cole Jordan, and Zach Albert. Oh, that was that was great. So we we sat down at the beginning of the year, and Peach said, okay, I want you to write down a personal goal. Um, I think it was like a short-term goal and then a long-term goal. So at the beginning of the year, it was like our first team meeting. Everyone's scribbling down like simple stuff. I think mine was like, become more disciplined with my footwork. Yeah, that never really happened. <laughs> and then short-term goal was, I don't know, run run a north of 700 offense kind of thing. And then long-term goal, it was, it was pretty cool. Everyone said win nationals. It was just like a unanimous thing. And Peach was good at step-by-step looking at our goals he said yeah we can have that goal but our goal right now isn't even to win provincials it's to win this next game so nothing really mattered except the game we were about to go into um and it was it was definitely an idea that everyone bought into nothing really mattered down the road even if it was we're playing humber next week and we're up in sudbury tonight playing cambrian or boreal one of the one of the more tougher games to honestly get up for after an eight hour drive up north and you got, you got to try to put on a show there. Um, yeah, it was pretty cool that we were able to just separate every game from its own and, and focus on what's here and what we need to get done in order for our next goal to be easier to accomplish. Yeah, that's that's a definitely a cool way to put it, because I think to me, that's one of the most overblown things in sports is like, oh, we just needed more experience. Well, experience doesn't mean anything if we don't reflect and debrief and make a plan. And it sounds like you guys yeah. definitely met and talked about it where it's not enough to go be a tourist in national and say, oh, look at all the experience we gained. No, we had some distractions and some heartbreak and we came back with a plan and, and we're better for it. I think that's where sports can be really powerful. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I, I am curious just to sidetrack a little bit. I believe you played FISU. Was it after your second year of Fanshawe or help me with the timeline when you got to go to FISU games? 
Yeah, it was after my second year. It was that summer. So what was that experience like representing Canada on that squad? Because I think that year, uh, was Eric from Nipissing the head coach or was it James from Windsor? I forget. It was Gravel. It was Gravel. We had Eric. Younger was an assistant. And uh, yeah, Will was an assistant from, what's it called? Windsor as well. Nice. And what was that experience like playing with those guys and just being with a different group, but also just confirming that you are in that top class as far as setters go in your age group? Like, what was it like uh, being selected to that team and eventually going to the games with a, a different squad? It was it was super exciting. I remember when I got the call, I was visiting my grade eight teacher for some reason. But um, <laughs> yeah, I got the call. I remember telling my parents I was so fired up. Um, yeah, it was it was super validating and just such a great feeling because the 18 youth team was, was great. And then I kind of had, I I didn't make the junior national team my first year and I was, yeah, pretty hit by that, but I was just kind of seeing what else I could try to do to get back on this national level or international level. Um, and, and yeah, so getting that call was epic. Uh, the training camp we had in Gatineau was super cool getting to know all these guys across the country that I'd been seeing play and do some crazy, crazy ball. It was Irvin, Lucas. That was cool. I always watched them when I was younger. Um, yeah, some, some local guys too. Pierce Johnson. That was cool. Having someone I knew pretty well, um, going into there and just, and traveling and taking everything in with a crazy good group of dudes that were really good at volleyball. And, and, and it was super cool to see what the next level there's there's like elite volleyball, which I thought post secondary was, and then there's next level professional style volleyball and international ball, and it was pretty cool to have some some mentors like them just show me the ropes and and what it's actually like, and this is your schedule, this is your routine, this is how you live as a as an international volleyball player. And yeah, it was it was a lot of a lot of good fun. Nice. Is that what you took away the most was just like, how do you carry yourself off the court and probably the speed of the game or what stands out as something that you could take back to Fanshawe and really apply? Cause like you said, playing with Brar and Coleman and some other guys like that's, those are guys who went on to play volleyball for a living, right? So you're in pretty good class. Yeah. Uh, so what did you take back to the OCAA after that experience? I think the professionalism, yeah, on and off the court was, was definitely a big part of it. And, and honestly, the speed of the game and how, tactical it is it is i thought i was i was running a fun show and and i learned everything there is about an offense and all that kind of stuff but as soon as i stepped onto that that rubber blue and orange tan court that was that was cool just to see even from every different country the styles of of how they play that you get the japan whose average height is five foot ten then you get russia whose average height is seven foot eight <laughs> and just how they play different volleyball and and you really got to just tailor your game to, to play on your strengths. And yeah, it's, it's crazy how some different countries and different teams are able to do that so well. Did you find any style that really challenged you? Like are, are just the read blockers that much better or do people try to trap set? Um, like what would they I do found, to, to disrupt your style a little bit? I didn't get in much, <laughs> but when I did, Actually, side note really quick. My first international point was against Iran. We ended up going to win on win this whole tournament. Wow, my first point, I get subbed in. I think it was like the third set late. I was cold. For guy rips in a topper, full speed, pass it tight. I go up with one hand, absolutely wipe it off this middle blockers, going 10 feet out of bounds. My left side plays it. 
<laughs> yeah. And then we lost the point. So that was my first point ever. That would have been the coolest first point if I got it. Uh, then, uh, <laughs> um, what was I saying? Sorry, just got a blank. I was just curious what uh, disrupted your style the most about the international oh, game. Oh, like, I think um, Japan was really good at blocking. Yeah, they were they were not having any of my tells or, or giveaways or me trying to be deceptive. They were biting on everything, and they were super good at, at reading and reacting. And that it's just so frustrating because you'll 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 assess a situation after after ten points. Like, okay, I figured out the pattern. This is gonna work. And then a free ball comes, you'll send your middle away, everything's good, the stars are aligning. And then you'll you'll dish something back and they'll have two blockers up with ease. And you're just, it, it is frustrating and it's tough to not let it go to your head. Uh, sometimes it does, sometimes you just got to be better and, and, and realize that, that that's their job. They're international players that are born to read setters and close blocks. And yeah, and- Japan. Japan bit me. Nice. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That reminds me of a story. Uh, you wouldn't have had a chance to listen to this. It hasn't come out yet, but we just had Dustin Snyder on the show and he was talking about everybody in the gym knew he was going to set Gavin, but he still had to run like the middle on the 30, like one out of six, just to get them to bite and just to do little things like that. So I'm wondering if you could share with me and hopefully some younger setters or coaches listening. How do you set up those situations that you think like, okay, everything's aligned. Now I'm going to explode, uh, exploit this. Like, is it honestly, keeping your middles and then running them away from your guy or what, when do you like to do overload? Like what are some little tricks that you like to script and set up over the course of the set? Yeah. So as simple as it may sound when I had a middle coming to me from position four. So when I have, like if I'm in setter and two, for example, and I've got both my attackers in front of me, I really enjoyed balls getting like passes, getting pushed towards four, just bunching that whole attack section into a two meter block. Because as soon as that happens, they're like they're they're probably going to bite. Actually, they respect their C ball enough with James that they probably wouldn't send their left side blocker down there. Um, but as soon as that gets into a congested area, it makes my job a little easier. I'm able to time my set and make my decision. I, I can see if they're going to jump with the middle, what it's looking like. Um, yeah, the, the super tight balls in front of me, I either did a fat overload or I just sent a screaming C ball high to the back for JJ to mush on a one-on-one one on one or one-on-none. Um, yeah, it wasn't so much time of the match when I tried to do, st- uh, do stuff. But, yeah, it, it was all reactive to the situation. Sometimes I would run – my favorite thing to do would be a 30. 30 and a backpipe to Cole. Cole had an incredible arm. His window was so big and so strong that he could hit a ball – like three feet in front of him at almost like a, a flat arm and just get so much pace behind it. Unreal. Um, I yeah. love watching that guy play too. And that reminds me of another point I had in my notes here to bring up is when PJ put on his mad scientist hat and he said, how are we going to get our best six players on the court? Well, Seb, oh, you're now gosh. a middle blocker. <laughs> yes. That was, <laughs> I thought he was joking. And <laughs> he was not. <laughs> But that that was a that was so cool. That was so men- like mentally satisfying and stimulating having to to process that entire new system and it was yeah, it was so cool. And and it was honestly really good I think for me to learn middle blocking just to help me speed up my blocking, feel out how middles feel, what it's like with their timing and and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it worked out great. We had 
Yeah, we went undefeated until national final. And then I got absolutely demoed through the middle. But I mean, it, it worked well enough, I guess. So obviously going through your career, like we have, like you've played a lot of beach. You mentioned like you wanted to be an outside even as late as like 16 years. So you're an athlete and you can play, but I'm wondering what was it really like? Like would PJ really do some advanced scouting and try to get you a rotation on the M2? Or were you just like in the deep end that sometimes you'd be like this, this blocking option. And how did you find the footwork to transition set and get out there? Like uh, there's so much that goes into putting your setter in three in these rotations, right? So I'm curious yeah. how you battled through those new situations. Cause you're always at the pin or you're always coming from one. And now you're in the middle dead center trying to yeah. fire up these awesome wing hitters you have. It was like a lot of it goes out to my lip gunner. <laughs> he, he saved my bacon a couple times. It, it is tough. Uh, especially if I'm, if I'm going to close a ball on the right side and my defender in one makes a dig and I got to sprint all the way back to one, turn around, square up to four, make a decision on where I'm going to set and then execute. It got super tough. So gunner, my lib made it, he is one hell of a back row setter. So like he took a, a lot of weight off my shoulders knowing that he was super down to take a ball would, would call me off on some, even just, just to take it. Um, but it definitely whooped my ass into shape. I had to do a lot of running, but it, it wasn't, to be honest, it, it wasn't as hard as I thought it would be because I had way more options to set. Like I could, I could be running two different pipes in any given rotation from anywhere on the court, along with, either two or three front row attacks. So it was super comforting knowing that any decently high dig or, or soft block or anything mid court could result in us getting like a, a four attack offense running from this. So it, it, where it made my life a little harder, we had the attackers to make it a little easier and give me more options. Amazing. Yeah. Credit to PJ for thinking this up and credit to you guys for executing. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was it was a killer time. Now there is one story I got to check in on, and this comes from uh, Jeff Miller, friend of the show. He mentioned, I, I got to bring up this, this Seneca tournament where PJ is doing a little bit of load management on you and you guys are progressing through the tournament. But when it comes to the finals, it, it's your turn to sit. Like I, I, I understand you're managing some injuries and stuff and, and you yeah. sit, but I don't know if it was PJ's competitive genes that kicked in or yours, but all of a sudden you're being told to get warm and you go in and, and basically save the day. Can you confirm or deny the story against Humber at the Seneca tournament? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we were in the finals and I'd played the semi and it was, I think, I think there were only two to three matches or two to three sets. I don't know, but I was mid game in my shin. I had a stress fracture in my shin and it was burning, super painful. So I was like, Peach, please just like, let me sit for now, man. And he's like, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, we'll rip you out. And then, so our, our second set of Reese went in and delivered pretty well. And we, I think we got that, we got that dub pretty easily, I think. And then he's like, okay, hey, you're down for the final. Like, this is exhibition does not really mean anything. And I'm like, okay, cool. So Reese goes and sets and they absolutely spanked us. And I was just kind of standing there in the box at the end of the bench. Like, Oh no, I can't lose to Humber. So I think PJ and I was like a collective, like, Hey, like kind of like the wink, like nod. And so he walked down the bench to me and he goes, okay, go find a bike. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, go find a bike, get warm. And I'm like, oh, okay. Cause I've been sitting for about an hour at this point. So I go, just start taking a stroll through Seneca's locker room and equipment room. And I just roll out a bike and I, I make eye contact with uh, Mac from Humber. 
and he's just like shaking his head at me and I'm like nodding right back and I'm like yeah man sorry but I can't lose to you guys so I just like put the bike at the end of the bench and I start warming up and as as each point goes on I see more and more Humber guys just like looking at me and I'm like okay here we go and yeah so I got warm and we yeah we we took that dub back (laughs) yeah it was it was pretty cool it felt like such an epic hero moment where I was just like yeah coming out of retirement let's hop on the bike go to work here comes the cavalry with seb stepping in to save the day <laughs> yeah yeah it was pretty fun that reminds me of one thing i wanted to check in on again just name dropping for the seven other time the pj episode if people haven't listened to that they need to go back but he mentioned that yeah. you and dre and maybe some other guys maybe i'm misstepping here but maybe some other guys you guys had built such a trust that you mm-hmm. could honestly stop practice and be like guys, we got to get it going. Like this needs to change. This needs to change that it wasn't always coach driven. So I'm wondering no. when did you feel like you had that green light that you could speak up and really be on the same page as, as coach and not overstep because PJ is definitely player centered and he's definitely a great volleyball coach, but he's definitely not a pushover. So I'm wondering where did you no. get the courage to do this? Well, Peach has always tried to instill in us that like, it's on us too. Like we're, we can, we can call stuff. We're a team. We can read the game just as well as, as peach cam and, and, and the vibe of the gym. And if we need to call it and take a two second water break just to clear our heads, like we, we have the authority to do that kind of thing. But yeah, once practices started getting a little shaky, either Dre, myself or Gunner or other captain would just be like, Hey boys, like, no, call it in peach, hold off, don't serve. And we'd kind of call a little quick huddle, be like, Okay, what's the issue right now? What's the goal of this drill? How can we attain the goal? How can we fix this? If it's an energy thing, how can we fix our intangibles? Is it body language? Is it communication? We'd we'd kind of center up, figure out what the issue is, what we can to tackle it, and, and then yeah, try to try to come back to the practice. And, and it just I feel like it would take a lot of pressure off of Peach, and knowing that he doesn't have to be constantly the one ragging at us and us getting tired of hearing his voice and saving his voice for the important stuff that he needs to be telling us. Um, yeah, I'd say it was probably around, I don't know if it would have been my first year. It could have been very well by the end of it when we felt super comfortable and, and we knew what we had to do. But I think for sure second year is when I would have at least started talking up. Dre, Dre did not really give a damn from the get-go. He was willing to speak his mind whenever. But yeah, I was still trying to figure out how comfortable I was with everyone, where my role was where the hierarchy stood and who I could and could not shoot down. And then, yeah, once I was a little more comfortable and figured that, that pyramid out. Yeah, it, it was, it was pretty cool. And it was really nice to see that everyone on the team was never like, come on, sub, like, shut up, bro. Like, let's figure it out. You don't need to be the one. Everyone was super like, yeah, you're right, guys. Let's call it, clean it up and, and get back to it. So we can win the game this weekend or, or whatever the case was. Wow. Yeah, that is that is super empowering. Because like I said, in other situations, that might not go as well, where one, there's a mutiny against you, because like, who are you to be telling me what to do? You're my peer. Or, yeah. or coach saying like, why are you stopping the drill? Like there is a hierarchy. And this is definitely a dictatorship, not a democracy. But yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it was it was a cool balance. Um, Peach gave us a lot of freedom and power, which was like amazing. Uh, it made our jobs a lot easier that we had the uh, the ability to call stuff and, and call people out and hold people accountable and make our own kind of sub team rules that, that everyone kind of abode abided abode by <laughs> <laughs> whatever the, the correct tense of that 
term is. I think you nailed it. For this show, you definitely nailed it. So. There we go. Let's go. I'm out of school now. <laughs> well, sweet man. I, I want to thank you for coming on the show and telling some stories because, like I said, we, we've brought you up a few times and it's good to get your version of what's going on and, and see how they overlap because I think it's pretty cool. And, and if we've ever, you know, gone too far when we bring you up, I, I am sorry because I do have a ton of respect for your game. It's just no. you're, you're such a good example to use the, the David Doty and you example because both heck of a setters. But like I said, one is like Shane White's molded setter and one's just like this radical guy who's going to do what he wants. But damn it, they both perform. <laughs> Well, well thanks a lot for having me man I, I appreciate it i love the, i love the show and yeah it's, it's a lot of fun listening to it and, and chatting with you dude well sweet man i do have one more question before we go i just want to ask if you have a, a funny story you can leave us with so you've told some amazing stories but i was wondering if there was one more you could leave us with a laugh just before we let you go oh, i got two is that cool yeah yeah take it away i was like super i didn't know which one to do okay first one was my first year at nationals <laughs> and it was kind of like funny and epic at the same moment we were um bronze medal game i think we were up like 24 18 in the in the fourth set to claim it and they came back and it was 24 23 and i'm walking back to i think position five to get ready for the next serve and i see peach walk from the box all the way up to the ref going to do this the timeout signal and him and i kind of lock eyes for a sec and i just give him like the head shake i'm like no please don't <laughs> we're feeling good right now those are spoof points please do not do this and he just kind of like looked at me, paused, and was like, all right, okay. And then just turned around, and then we won the next point, and yeah, we got program's first national bronze. So that was, that was pretty funny that he was just like, all right, it's in your hands now. I tried. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, credit to PJ not to be like in an alpha mode where be like, no, I'm the coach. I'm going to call timeout versus like, yeah, you're all right. Like, okay. I know, and it was that must have been so hard for him to just trust me on it. But I just had that, you know, when you just got that feeling, you're like, man, no, like this isn't what part of the roller coaster where we start going down. These are like spoof points. We feel good. Let's just let's one point. We can side out. Got James on the right. We'll set him a lob. Just let him go to town. Yeah, so that's what it, <laughs> that's how it ended up. Um, yeah, and then the second one, <laughs> this one was so funny. So I was youth national team. We were in Des Moines, Iowa staying at this epic hotel it was like the embassy suites or something like that and on every single this this hotel was a massive a cube and all the rooms were on the outside so if you like opened your door you could just look into this huge open area in the middle of the hotel and, and each floor of the hotel had a waterfall right outside the elevators like a little water waterfall pool thing and so we were like just finished dinner or whatever and it was like me, like Mods, Pierce, Ashenko, and, and Jacob Kern. And Jacob Kern decides to just hop in this waterfall and start swimming around in the pool. I'm sorry if I'm incriminating you, buddy, but it's <laughs> too good to not be told. And as he's like hopping out of it, there's security that comes out of the door across the building. And he just like points and he's like, yo. And so Jake like hops out of this pool as the security guard's starting to run over to him. And he just books it out the secure, the, like the fire exit door and just gone. And so we were all, whatever, 18. No one had cell phone plans in the States. No one could get a hold of him. Kern goes missing for about three and a half hours. And we're all like, okay, do we tell Benjo? Like, like what, what just happened? Like, is he gone? And so we're all freaking out. And then all of a sudden, he just strolls in the front door. He's got his towel over his head. He's like, yeah, there's like a, this really nice folk music festival on across the street, boys. 
I was uh, kind of afraid to come back, but yeah, I just I just waited till the concert was done. <laughs> and we're all like freaking out, thinking he got arrested. Yeah, that was it was nuts. I, I'm glad you describe it that way, because when you said Iowa, I was kind of like, oh, this was probably like a boring trip. But that sounds like an amazing hotel. Yeah. It was actually a pretty epic hotel. Des Moines was a pretty cool city. But um, <laughs> yeah, that's what made it. It was it was an epic hotel. Kern definitely took advantage of it. Oh man, well I'm I'm sad to call it there. I feel like you have a ton more stories, yeah. but uh, no, that's all good. Man. Good to finally get you on the show and hopefully convince some other people that just such an easy guy to root for. And I know you're into coaching, nice. and hopefully, in your playing days aren't behind you, so we can root you on some more. But for now, I yeah. think I've taken enough of your day, and we we've learned a lot, man. Thank you. No, I appreciate it, man. Thanks, thanks for having me on this.